Hey everybody, thanks for stopping by. I'm Eric Johnson and this is the Burley Flow Podcast. Every week I post a story from up here in Burley Flow, Wisconsin, a little town on the banks of the Mississippi River in the southwest corner of the state. If you like what you hear, and I hope you do, please subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up with everything that's going on. And when you get a chance, go ahead and check out the website at burleyflow.com, where you'll find a bunch more stuff and links to things like my book and my Patreon site. And as always, thanks again for being here. When the freight trains go through Burley Flow, they go through fast, really fast. So fast, in fact, that they'll shake the house. I live about two blocks from the tracks, and there are times when, besides the rumbling and the blasting of the whistle, the dishes in the cupboard will rattle to the point where I think, this time it's got to be an earthquake. Part of that might have something to do with the age of the house. The eye is at least three generations old. More if you go by burly flow generations, which tend to clip by quicker than other places. But mostly it's the power of the trains themselves. It was during one of these passing periods that Joey Garnavello apparently knocked on my door. I say apparently because I didn't actually hear him, so I didn't answer. But he told me about it the next day at the prop wash. Why didn't you just come up, I asked. The door's always open. Contrary to what my years in the city taught me, I've adopted the local custom of leaving my door unlocked. It's kind of a peer pressure thing. I don't want to be the only uptight guy in town who's always fumbling for his keys. I didn't want to disturb you, he said. I could see you had company. He lowered his voice when he said that last part, which of course drew everybody's attention at the men's table, and their two cents. Everything from, that was quick, to, it's about time. Everyone was so enthusiastic that I hated to set the record straight. I'm not sure what you saw, I said, but I think I'd know if I had a house guest. What I saw, Joey replied, was a woman carrying a serving tray into the living room. At that, Shelley Cochran, a lifelong waitress who, to the best of anyone's knowledge, had never broken so much as a water glass, dropped the tray she was carrying, breaking any number of cups and saucers and thereby starting the great Burley Flow ghost hunt. Had Shelley not dropped the tray, I would have chalked it up to a practical joke. Joey loved nothing more than being able to say gotcha after getting you good, but Shelley was sure-handed and proud of it, and never would have participated to the point of sullying her reputation. In fact, it was that reputation that ultimately drew the attention of the Southwest Wisconsin Affiliated Paranormal Society, SWWAPS. Word got out that Shelley had dropped her tray, and so people naturally wanted to know why. Something about a ghost in the eye was the usual answer, and while that didn't immediately trigger any kind of special notice among the residents of Burley Flow, it kept the story alive long enough to be heard by Ollie Reynolds over in Snowpatch, who, as lead investigator for swaps, always had an ear to the ground for a possible investigation. 
Somebody was looking for you the other day, Shelley told me one morning, digging around her apron pocket. Left a card and everything. After a little more digging, she found it and passed it to me. We hadn't discussed her tray dropping since it happened, but it was clear by the conspiratorial tone of her voice that the two things were connected. If Swaps was after professionalism with a card, they missed it by at least a mile. Their initials were in a juvenile, spooky font next to an Eye of Sauron-like graphic, and the tagline, Got Haunts, was predictably in block letters. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Not them. The problem was, eventually, they called me. I hear you're sharing your apartment with one of the restless, a very chipper voice at the other end of the line said. It reminded me of the call I got from Dean Bowser back when I was at the old Sanderley place. It had the same up-tempo salesmanship, only instead of offering to take me to the river to introduce me to the sport of bass fishing, the voice was offering to take me to an altogether different river, one that was just as evangelical and promised to open just as many doors, but whose buy-in would require leaving a lot of personal baggage at the door. Most people are taught to fear the unknown, but we embrace it, the voice, Ollie Reynolds, said. In fact, we welcome it. At which point he told me about the offering. The thing he said made them different than the other paranormal groups in the area, whose due diligence extended only as far as taking an initial statement and maybe, maybe, doing a quick scan of the newspaper archives. But what about the needs of the restless themselves, Ollie wanted to know. Nobody ever thinks about them. That's why he wanted to know whatever I could tell him about the initial sighting and anything else I might have noticed that I couldn't immediately explain. Like this phone call, I wanted to say, but of course I didn't. I don't think it would have mattered in any way. It was pretty obvious Ollie Reynolds had the determination of a bloodhound. Swaps took a restless first approach to investigating, he told me. It's kind of a combination of pack in, pack out, and the Hippocratic Oath, he said. Sort of do no harm and respect the place you're in. It would be wrong, he continued, to think of the offering as an olive branch. It was more a sign of respect. We don't fear the restless, we just want to get to know them better, he said. Maybe give them a little peace. Then, after a brief pause, he followed up with, You're not afraid, are you? It seemed to me a leading question, like, for all his insistence that he only wanted to make life, or the afterlife, or purgatory, or whatever it was, better for these spirits, a part of him, probably the better part of him, really just wanted to be scared. I didn't know what to tell him. Not only wasn't I afraid, I was completely unaware of the tray-carrying woman who apparently shared the eye with me. There were little things, of course, but there always are. Startles without a reason, random rustlings that don't make sense. Most I blamed on Rufus, the squirrel who lived in the wall underneath the kitchen window. But there were other things, little things, but there always have been wherever I've lived. Against my better judgment, I agreed to let him come by for an initial investigation. If nothing else, it would be a chance to see how these things were done, and it would keep him from continuing to ask about it. Because I'm me, I was incapable of flat-out telling him no, and I had the feeling he was equally incapable of understanding anything less. 
You sure you know what you're getting into? Joey asked after I told him about the investigation. It could get awkward, you know, if you find out you don't like her. For the preliminary investigation, what Ollie called the pilot study, it would be just him and his tech man, a brooding, pale, extremely underfed teenager named Floyd, who looked well on his way to becoming a ghost in his own right. If he didn't already, I was sure it wouldn't be long before he was living in his mother's basement, exploring the far reaches of the Internet with a Mountain Dew in one hand and a bag of Funyuns in the other. You can laugh, but they're stereotypes for a reason. Floyd handed out digital voice recorders and set up a knockoff GoPro with night vision in the living room and another on a tripod at the bottom of the stairs. If your friend has a pattern, Ollie explained, we might catch her with that one. For the offering, Ollie asked me to supply a tray and a glass of water, which we left on the kitchen table. It was something welcoming, he said, that dovetailed with the only thing we knew about her, since all his other research had turned up nothing. Now would probably be a good time to talk a little about the layout of the eye. It's small, but feels even smaller because it's so compartmentalized. This bedroom, which really isn't all that big, is about the size of the living room, which, with its shuttered front-facing window, feels more like a basement. Not surprisingly, that's where Floyd chose to set up. The kitchen dining room is directly atop the impossibly steep stairs and consists of a sink, arranged with no hood, two postage stamp counters, and a refrigerator about the size of a female Olympic gymnast. The bathroom, raised up six inches to give the plumbing the space it needs to stay warm in the winter, reminds me of a 1970s-era camper, with formica walls, laugh-in carpeting, and a one-piece tub and shower that feels about as sturdy as a plastic milk jug. The room is so narrow, in fact, that you don't even see the notched sink area until you're on your way to the toilet, which sits at the end of the little hallway like a literal porcelain throne. If anything about the apartment makes me jump, it's my own reflection in the mirror. This is the saddest triumphant return I could ever imagine, Joey said the first time he came to visit, and while he was probably right, I've grown fond of the quirky little place. It's about as far from the old Sanderly place as you could possibly get, but it's got its own charm if you're patient enough to look for it. It also apparently had its own ghost, and she definitely required patience. In the end, a whole night's worth. And I've got to say, until you've spent an entire evening sitting in the dark with two other guys in a place as small and cramped as the eye, you haven't really earned the right to talk about patience. It was like being a kid at Grandma's house again. On the plus side, because no one was talking, there was no rundown of who was sick in the hospital or recently in the ground. On the minus side, there was no cheese tray and no promise of Neapolitan ice cream at the end of it all. As a storyteller, I'd love to be able to punch up this part of the story, but I can't. There's just nothing to embellish, because literally nothing happened, paranormal or otherwise. No boards popped, no tree limbs brushed provocatively against the house. Even Rufus refrained from scratching out a hello from the other side of the baseboards. It was just two grown men and whatever Floyd was, sitting in the dark, holding voice recorders and trying to stay awake. Until sunrise. 
The only thing the voice recorders picked up was the rumbling of my stomach as I thought about that cheese tray. Well, one thing's for sure, Ollie said as he packed up the next morning. There's nothing going on here. I'm sure that wasn't intended to make me feel guilty, but at the same time it wasn't said to make me feel relieved either. In the end, what I took away from it was that ghost hunting was a tough business, and every now and then you ended the night disappointed. Kind of like life, I guess. I suppose if I was going to feel guilty about anything, it would be for not pointing out the empty water glass. I knew it was the kind of thing that would have salvaged the night for him, but I just couldn't face the idea of giving him a second wind and doing the whole thing over again. And besides, the way I figure it, if she's not restless enough to really show herself, who am I to point a finger? Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for stopping by, and when you get a chance, don't forget to check out the website at burlyflow.com. There's some cool stuff there I think you'll like. Thanks again. We'll catch you later. <laughs>